Today's New Testament reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning, and if, if this is your first time here, uh, we're very grateful to, to have you, and, and before you, you take off today, I, I do hope we can get a chance to connect. It's, it's a beautiful day outside, we've got some, some tea and, and coffee after the service, so if you can, I'd, I'd encourage you to stay and into fellowship with us. And today, we're continuing through our series on the Gospel of, of Matthew. And as the church, we are a creature of the word. God, the spirit, uses the words of scripture to create, to call, to collect, to craft his church. It's, it's this gospel, it's these passages. It's the Bible itself that makes us what we are. It's in these passages that we meet the promise of the gospel. So in light of that truth, and in confidence of that truth, let us come before, at, come before God as the people of God. Let us pray. God, our Father, we, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that the words that follow would, would be faithful to your purposes, to your intents for this passage, Father God. And we thank you for the truths that we find here, and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would minister them to our heads, to our hands, to your hearts, and that we, Lord, through this passage, would more fully taste the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So let's start with, with a question. What does it mean when Christ here quotes from Hosea 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? What is going on here? Is Christ saying that mercy is good and sacrifice is, is nothing? Is Christ saying that he doesn't desire sacrifice at all? Well, to help us orient ourselves to this passage, there, there's another helpful quotation from Christ which help, helps us to untie this knot. And this is, this is a, another surprising statement from Luke 14, 26. Christ says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
And Jesus, of course, is not telling us to hate the people that are closest to us, let alone our very life. Remember the two great commands that define Scripture in Jesus' ministry, that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. We must love our neighbor. Jesus has told us this again and again and again, but what he has given us here is a hyperbole, a kind of exaggerated statement in order to get our attention. Our love for God must be so great that, that by comparison, figuratively speaking, it might look like hate. It might look like we hate our neighbor. And what we have here is, is not a literal ethical directive, <clears throat> but a kind of effective rhetorical flourish. Yes, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as your very self, but love God with every bit of who you are. Your neighbor is a great, great good, but God is the very greatest good of all. And that same logic is at work here with mercy and sacrifice. Sacrifice, of course, is a good thing. God commands us to sacrifice, but God desires mercy more. Mercy and sacrifice are both goods, both great goods, but mercy is a much greater good than sacrifice. But we can say more here. Consider a truth that's put forward by the, by the theologian and, and ethicist Michael Sherwin. He tells us that proper courage is courage that is ordered to justice. Justice is a greater good than courage, and so proper courage must be ordered to justice. For instance, we, we might imagine the following scenario. Suppose you're at a huge university lecture, and suppose afterwards you try to conquer your fear of public speaking by publicly asking a probing question to the presenter after the lecture, and you do so only for the sake of conquering your fear of public speaking. In that case, you are trying to grow in courage only for the sake of growing Encourage. But imagine the very same scenario, but in this case, after listening humbly and thoughtfully to the speaker, you believe that the speaker has said something that is unjust. You have a deep fear of public speaking, but you force yourself to overcome this fear for the sake of justice. You exercise your courage. You come to the mic and you ask a public and probing question for the sake of justice. Sherwin would tell us this is true courage because it is directed to justice. The virtue of courage is true courage to the extent that it's ordered to the greater virtue of justice. And this brings us back to mercy and sacrifice. True courage is for the sake of justice, and true sacrifice is for the sake of mercy. As Christ tells us, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And getting this statement right, I believe, is key to understanding our present passage. Christ is calling us to properly relate in order mercy and sacrifice. Yet, as we will see with both Matthew the tax collector and the Pharisees, there are at least two ways to get this wrong. But of course, Christ comes to set us right. And so I want to look at this passage under three headings. Sacrifice for the sake of power, sacrifice for the sake of appearance, and sacrifice for the sake of mercy. So let's start with sacrifice for the sake of power. 
And in order to understand the way that the tax collector Matthew breaks apart mercy and sacrifice, it's important to understand who this Matthew is. And I'm here going to follow the, the Christian tradition and, and assume that this Matthew that Jesus calls as his disciple is the very same Matthew who wrote the gospel account that we're now reading. And this, I believe, actually helps shed light on the present passage. The first thing to note here is that we find the same account of Jesus calling this disciple in both the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. But there's a difference, because in both of those accounts, we find a different name for this tax collector. Not Matthew, but Levi. And so we have to ask, what is it that's going on here? And the commentator, Ralph Allen Smith, he, he's extremely insightful in bringing these two accounts together and, and so helping us to understand who this Levi, who this Matthew is. Smith notes that it's not uncommon for disciples to receive a new name. Simon becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul, and here Levi becomes Matthew. But that raises another question. How do we know that Levi becomes Matthew, and Matthew doesn't become Levi. Well, Smith points out that the name Matthew is likely meant to direct us to the Greek word for disciple, methetes. In this sense, Matthew takes upon himself the name disciple. He was Levi, but now he's Matthew. He is disciple. And the work of New Testament scholar Patrick Schreiner also helps give weight to this interpretation. Schreiner sees Jesus' words in, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 51, as the key verse of Matthew's whole book. Jesus says here, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of, kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And Schreiner here points out that the word translated here as trained, methutethes, connects directly to the Greek word disciple, methetes. And what that means is that we might here translate trained scribe as discipled scribed. And in writing this gospel account, Matthew becomes this discipled scribe. Matthew, might, we might say, becomes the Matthewed scribe. Levi becomes Matthew, Levi becomes disciple. And this interpretation also connects with the task that Jesus here gives to the discipled scribe, to the Matthewed scribe, to bring out treasures both new and old, to present the newness of Christ in light of the treasures of the Old Testament, and to present the treasures of the Old Testament in light of the newness of Christ. But how so? Well, Smith points out that it's not just the name Matthew that's significant, but also the name of Levi. Smith argues that the name Levi hints that this tax collector is from the tribe of Levi, from the tribe of priests. And perhaps he was even supposed to, to be a priest, but instead he's chosen to give his services to Rome through the, famous, uh, through the job famous for overcharging and, and cheating people, the job of, of a tax collector. And at the very least, his name Levi is meant to make the reader think of the tribe of Levi and the Levitical priesthood. This is a cue that Matthew is giving his reader. But this, as Smith points out, presents us with a surprising irony. 
priests and Levites were meant to be supported in their priestly work by the tithes of the people. And in a sense, we can think of the, the tithe here as a kind of tax given to the Levites by the tribes of Israel. And here, Levi is still supported by taxes, but not the taxes given by people in observance to the law of God, but the taxes that are exacted by the law of Caesar. Levi has traded God for Caesar. And we can go even further. I believe Matthew is showing us here how the old is being understood in terms of the new, but it's the wrong new. The Levite Matthew is still collecting taxes as Levites are meant to do, but not according to the new of Christ, but according to the new of Caesar. Levi has become a priest of a much, much different king. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was founded upon mercy. Sacrifices were given and undertaken to receive and dispense the mercy of God, and the sacrifices themselves often were acts of mercy. A sacrifice can be all of the ways that we give to and for the sake of the Lord. For instance, the Israelites were not supposed to harvest their field to the edges, and this act of mercy allowed those without fields to find it in the outer parts of the fields. That's where they could glean. These sacrifices flowed to and from mercy. The tithes that the Levites received for their livelihood flowed to and from mercy. But the taxes that Levi, that Matthew, is here choosing to live upon, they are very different. These are taxation of force not built upon mercy, but upon overcharging and exploiting and often enforced by intimidation and violence. And this, Levi thinks, is the true system. This is the way that the world really works. For the Levite-turned-tax collector, mercy has no place in the real world. Power is what, the, what makes the world go round. The Levitical priesthood relied upon the shaky foundation of mercy, but Rome relies on the sure foundation of might. And in this sense, sacrifice, the, the taxes of the people here, well, it's set against mercy. Instead, sacrifice is ordered to a power of control and manipulation, which doesn't have any place at all for mercy. Mercy is for the weak, and, and the weak are only those who would like to have power but don't actually have it. As biologist and, and philosopher Gene Rostand has said, kill one man and you are a murderer, kill millions of men and you are a conqueror. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And Matthew has to read this as a strict either or, either mercy or sacrifice. Because if you have mercy, you will not get that sacrifice. The Old Testament is full of people not making good on their sacrifices. However, the tax records of Rome is not. One New Testament dictionary, in relating the, the Greek word for mercy with its uh, Old Testament Hebrew counterparts, it says the following. Mercy often refers to the help or kindness someone receives from a superior. And in that case, mercy requires a kind of forfeiting of power. 
It requires that one who has more power give up that power for the sake of someone with less power. Mercy then requires sacrifice, and a merciful sacrifice is one that gives up power. Not a sacrifice that, that, that tries to appease or grasp at power. But the sacrifice given by the people to the tax collector Matthew, well, this is not sacrifice for the sake of God's mercy. This is sacrifice because of the fear of Roman power. And reflecting on that, we ourselves have to step back and ask, is this also where we are? Have we, in ways, also chosen to cling to the powers that be instead of mercy? Are there ways in which we, like Matthew, have come to see Scripture as a nice thought, but, but woefully naive in addressing the actual complexities of life? Do we silence or even contradict our Christian commitments in order to gain approval in, in certain groups or at work when we know that we should speak up? This, too, is a case of trading God for Caesar. Just as Levi chose to live on the taxes of Caesar rather than the tithes of the Levitical system, we, too, are living on the approval of the crowd rather than on the approval of God. And just as one empire gives way to another, so too will public opinion and consensus change. Do you find yourself wholly agreeing with every single item in a political party's platform? This can be a warning sign that the party, the group, towing the political line and the social power and capital that come with that have become more important than the concrete issues that the good practice of politics is actually meant to address. This might also be a warning sign that, like Matthew, your political membership has become more important than your membership in the people of God. Do you ignore your Christian commitments in the way that you go about doing your job? Do you cut ethical corners because everyone else does and that's just a part of the culture? If so, you are ordering your work, your sacrifice, not according to mercy, but to power, not according to right, but to might. Do we trust in unjust systems rather than economic exchanges that are based upon mercy? Levi likely made a lot more money as a tax collector than he would have as a priest. But do we make a similar move when we buy things as cheap as we can, regardless of how a certain business treats its employees? Are we willing to sacrifice more money for the sake of a more merciful economy? And what does Christ do in response to all of this? Well, he comes and he says to the man who has no place for mercy, follow me. Christ here shows mercy to the merciless. And as Christ tells us in this passage, he came not to call sinners, but the righteous. And Christ here is speaking tongue in cheek. We are all sinners, all of us. None of us are righteous. None of us love God and neighbor as, I, as we should. There's an old joke that, that, that says there are two kinds of people in the world, those who divide it up into simplistic, either-or, dichotomous categories, and people like myself who take a more nuanced view of things. But, bad joking aside, Jesus actually does divide the world into two kinds of people. 
those who rightly know that they are sinners in need of divine mercy and those who wrongly think that they are righteous and just and have no need for mercy whatsoever. All people, Jesus tells us, fall into one of these two categories. We are all sinners that need mercy. That's universal. But the difference is whether or not we know it and confess it. And one benefit of Matthew's position is that he has no illusions about who he is. Matthew is despised by his people. He's a traitor to his history and his heritage. He has no illusions about being righteous. When Jesus comes, Matthew listens. Matthew knows that he is sick. Matthew knows that he needs the great physician. Matthew follows Jesus. Matthew accepts this mercy because Matthew knows that he desperately needs it. And then Matthew invites Jesus to dinner with others who have no illusions about themselves. They know that they're sinners. They know that they are sick. They know that they need the great physician. They know that mercy is their only hope. But there is a group that we find who sees all of this and they are appalled, they are scandalized, they are horrified. And they come to Jesus' disciples and they ask, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And of course, the implication here is that they themselves need no doctor, they need no mercy. And this brings us to our second point, sacrifice for the sake of appearance. When I speak of appearance here, I simply mean going through the motions, doing what you're supposed to do because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. It's what ex what's expected, it's what respectable people do, it, it looks good and it looks proper to others. For instance, apart from, from certain dietary restrictions, there's no biblical law that would prohibit the Pharisees from eating with Matthew and his friends. But in order to keep up appearances, they themselves would never do this. And really stop and think about their question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It never even crosses their mind to minister to these people. Think about that. These are the religious leaders of the society, and they can't even imagine that, that perhaps, perhaps, there's a chance that these people could and would be brought into a saving relationship with God. And this is our first clue that something is deeply wrong here. Their framework of religion is not a dying patient in need of the cure that only the great physician can provide. No, it's about checking the right religious boxes that people should check. It's sacrifice simply because sacrifice is something you should do. And we actually also see this mentality with the disciples of John. They come to Jesus and they ask, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but, but your disciples do not fast? And the tax collecting Matthew, for, for all of his faults, he knew that sacrifice was actually for something, even if he thought it was for the wrong purpose of, of, of power. But here, the disciples of John and the Pharisees have forgotten that sacrifice is actually for anything at all. And Jesus answers them with the image of, of wedding guests fasting for the arrival of the bridegroom. Theologian Peter Lightheart is, is helpful here. He writes, Jews fasted in anticipation. Fasting meant waiting, and specifically waiting for the feast to begin. 
But once Jesus has come, the time of anticipation is over. The time of waiting has reached its end. Jesus reminds them that fasting is a discipline for the sake of a purpose and a goal. It prepares us to wait for the arrival of the bridegroom. Just as, training, just as we train our desires for food in fasting, so too do we train our desires to rejoice in this coming. However, the disciples of John have forgotten that fasting is for something other than the mere act of fasting. Like the Pharisees, it's simply something that you do. Well, you should fast this much and this often. Okay, why? Well, because it's what you're supposed to do. They've forgotten that fasting is meant to prepare us for feasting. And we can definitely relate. We engage in spiritual disciplines like prayer because we feel like we should. We pray because we're supposed to pray, and to our surprise, we find that we don't really want to pray. We try to read the Bible every day because you're supposed to read the Bible every day, and to our surprise, well, we don't really want to read the Bible. We tithe our money because, well, you're supposed to tithe, but to our surprise, we find that we don't really want to tithe. Let me ask you a question. Would anyone undergo an extremely rigorous exercise program if it wasn't for anything else but the mere act of exercising? Would anyone commit themselves to that daily commitment and that bodily strain if it didn't actually put us into better shape? Of course not. But somehow we think that spiritual disciplines and exercise can be done without any purpose of actually making us spiritually healthier. Jesus tells us, you fast because you are anticipating my coming. You pray because of the astounding privilege to talk with God that I have given you in my name. You read the Bible because as you read, the Holy Spirit ministers my person and work to you. You tithe because you get the privilege of joining my merciful and salvific purposes in the world. Yes, these disciplines are difficult, but it's a very modern error to put joy and difficulty at odds with each other. Just ask the expert piano player, the, the person who's learned multiple languages, the craftsman, the scholar. Let them show you just how wrong that this is. Let them tell you that deep discipline is the road to deep joy in what we do. And so, why do we fast? Why do we read? Why do we pray? Why do we tithe? Well, we do so for anticipation of and communion with Christ. We don't do it just to go through the motions or check the boxes. This is not religious maintenance. This is life and death. We have to realize that without these practices by which we commune with Christ, we are dead. Christ is our great physician, and these practices are the ways that we come to him, to his mercy, and receive life. These are not for appearance. These are for survival. Remember how Jesus divides the world between the ones who know they desperately need him and those who do not. And this is important because often we can fall into the trap of associating tax collectors with a particular group in our modern society that is often not in the church. 
we can say, well, if, if Jesus was here today, he would be spending all his time with these people, with that people, with this group, with that group. But that misses the point. It's not about any particular group in society. Pharisees like Nicodemus came to Jesus too. No, the issue is whether you are proud or humble. That's the key question. And pride or humility can be found in any corner or any sector of society. Matthew knew that he was a sinner and this made him humble. But the Pharisees in this passage, they kept up religious appearance and that made them prideful. And the same is true for us today. The first question is never, what societal group are you in? No, the first question is, do you know that you are a sinner in need of the great physician? It is the humble, the humble who love to be with Jesus, be they tax collectors like Matthew or Pharisees like Nicodemus. And this brings us to our third and final point, sacrifice for the sake of mercy. And so as we've outlined these wrong practices of, of sacrifice, sacrifice for the sake of power or sacrifice for the sake of appearance, perhaps you're thinking, of course, that's obvious. No one at all should aim at that. And, and perhaps you find yourself thinking about that earlier example, the person who overcame their fear of public speaking to ask that probing question about an unjust statement. And again, this is true courage because it's ordered to justice. It's courage for the sake of justice. And, and perhaps you think, well, why not just apply sacrifice to this? Why not sacrifice? Why not give of ourselves and resources for the sake of, of justice? Why not order our life to justice? Wouldn't that be better than mercy? And we have to ask a question. Well, what is it that you mean by justice? What is your ethic of justice? Well, consider the Bible's ethic of justice. Consider what God demands of each and every human being. God tells us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so we are called to love God wholly and fully and completely all the time, every moment, every second. We're also called to love every human as ourself, and what that means is meeting the needs of others with the very same love and intensity by which we meet our own needs all the time, every second. What that means is being just as sad and sorrowful for the pains and struggles of others as we are for our own. What that means is, is celebrating and rejoicing in the good of others just as we celebrate and rejoice in our own goods. For example, it would mean rejoicing with a friend who got a job, the job that you were both competing for, but still rejoicing with that friend with the very same joy as you would if you had been the one who got the job. This is the ethic and this is the justice that God calls us to. And so in response, you might say, well, isn't that ridiculous? Isn't there a place for being good enough? Well, I, I certainly understand this way of thinking, but please admit that you are rejecting an absolute and perfect notion of justice. If we can speak of being good enough, then we don't have to be completely just. If we can speak of being good enough, then in, in some way we are like the tax-collecting Matthew, resigning ourselves to some form of the status quo and the powers that be. 
Justice is a beautiful, a wonderful thing. Living in this way is the perfect picture of human flourishing. But it's also a terrifying thing because it shows us how far we are from this. If sacrifice is ordered to justice, to true justice, to perfect justice, then our only truly just sacrifice is our own life. Perfect justice demands that all injustice be judged. It is just that we bear the punishment for all the ways that we have been unjust, that we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved our neighbor as ourself. If sacrifice is ordered to perfect justice, then the only just sacrifice is that of ourselves, the judgment of our very own lives. But what would it mean to have sacrifice for the sake of, of mercy? And, and how can perfect justice and perfect mercy go together. If we are being just, then, then we have to bring judgment upon all injustice, including ourselves. But if, if we're being merciful, then we are forgiving injustice. But if mercy causes us to forgive injustice, then the judgment upon injustice is not being carried out. And ironically, this would be injustice. Yet, if judgment is justly carried out on all injustice, there's no place for mercy. And so we're at an impasse, and what is it that we are meant to do? When we find that our common categories no longer work, if we want a perfectly just God, then we cannot have mercy. But if we want a perfectly merciful God, then we can't have justice. Something here has to give. Our old framework doesn't work. Our old religious assumptions must be broken down. And Christ gives us two images to this very effect. We cannot put a new unshrunken cloth on an old garment. We cannot put new wine into old wineskins. <clears throat> the garment will tear. <clears throat> the wineskins will burst. And so here, too, Christ gives us something new. Something that can't be fitted inside any other system or framework. We need new cloths, new garments. We need new wineskins that can hold and embrace this teaching. This is the new of Christ that shows the mercy which the old Levitical priesthood and sacrificial system was ultimately founded upon and pointed to. This is the true new that reveals the old. You thought coming to God was about being just. But that means you have a God without mercy. You thought coming to God was about receiving mercy, but that means you have a God without justice. You thought coming to God was just about being good enough, but that means you have a God who is neither perfectly just nor perfectly merciful. But no, it's not about us coming to God with our lukewarm justice and mercy. It's about God coming to us in his perfect judgment and mercy, his perfect justice. This is what rips the garments. This is what bursts the wineskins. But we have to ask a question. When Christ says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, isn't Christ telling us what we should do? Isn't he telling us how to come to God? Isn't he saying, you yourselves go and be merciful? Isn't this a command for us? Eventually, but we can't get there too quickly. Remember that the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples not why they 
are eating with sinners. No, they ask why Jesus is eating with sinners, why he is doing what he is doing. Why is Jesus fellowshipping with these people who are obviously ill? Well, he's fellowshipping with them because they know that they need God's mercy. But, but how can, we, can a perfectly just God give them mercy? We're back to that same impasse. What is that new wine? What is that new garment? Well, the answer that tears the old garment and bursts the old wineskins is the cross. Where does the judgment go that, where, that we deserve for injustice? Upon Christ himself, as he suffers the punishment that perfect justice demands, he does so on the cross. And in taking this perfect justice upon himself, Christ mercifully saves us from it. Even more, he mercifully gives us his own perfect justice, his own perfect righteousness, his own perfect standing before God from a life of perfect love to God and neighbor. God is holy just. Christ has borne our judgment, and God is wholly merciful. We have been forgiven. Christ is the great sacrifice of perfect mercy because he is the great sacrifice of perfect justice. Christ is the great sacrifice of perfect justice because he is the great sacrifice of perfect mercy. The, Christ, the cross the cross is not only a place where two wooden beams meet. The cross is also the place where perfect justice and perfect mercy meet. And Christ offers this mercy to all of us. All we have to do to receive it is to open our hands to Christ. By faith, we need only to recognize and confess that we are sinners in need of this mercy, to gratefully receive this mercy that Christ himself, the great physician, longs to give us. And when we do this, we, like those tax collectors and sinners, are invited to fellowship and feasting with God. And there is, as Christ tells us, a time to fast. And that time has come again. The bridegroom has returned to God the Father, but one day, one day, he will come back to us and we will enjoy the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And so now we fast in anticipation of this joyous wedding. And two, we are merciful to one another, not to receive or earn the mercy of God, but because we have been given the mercy of God in full in Jesus Christ. Christ desires mercy and not sacrifice precisely because he desires to be with us, his church, his bride. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. We thank you for the impasse that this brings us to, the impasse, Lord, that can only be solved that can only be joyously received in Christ Jesus. Thank you for him and the work that he has done on our behalf. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.